Well, I often begin by asking a question, but today I'm going to begin by stating the obvious. Nobody wants to be called a fool. It's a strong word, and no one thinks of him or herself as a fool. No one self-identifies as a fool, but the word exists for a reason. Those who persist in foolish behavior, making one foolish choice after another, show themselves to be fools. But what does that mean? What constitutes a foolish choice? Think about that. We usually speak of foolish choices as those that lead to harm rather than to happiness. When a person really should have known better, right? That's the way that we put it. If you make a series of choices, each one leading to further harm rather than to happiness, when you really should have known better, then you show yourself to be a fool. So it's not a matter of what you do and don't know, is it? It's a matter of what you choose to do with what you know. It's a matter of the heart. And describing foolishness in this way helps us to better describe the opposite, wisdom. Wisdom is not about intellect or cleverness or savviness. Wisdom is not even about knowledge, about knowing a lot of things, but rather about living in light of the most important things. The wise person sees what is most important with such clarity that they are then compelled to make choices in keeping with that knowledge. Wisdom and folly, they're matters of the heart. That's what we're going to be considering this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. You can find it on page 859 of the Pew Bible. Our English Bibles place the 12 minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. And Jonah is the fifth of the 12. It goes Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. If you get to Micah and Nahum, you've gone too far. They are called the minor prophets, not because they are less important, right? But because these 12 books are much shorter than the books of the four major, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel that come right before them in our English Bibles. Hopefully you found your place. We'll be looking at the entire chapter, chapter 1 of Jonah, but I'm going to begin by reading the first six verses aloud. Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Let us pray. 
Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. By the Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts, that we may have a heart of wisdom rather than folly. Bless the preaching of your word in and for the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So who is this Jonah, son of Amittai? Well, there is one other reference to this man in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Kings chapter 14, where we discover that Jonah was from a small town called Gath-Hefer, just two to three miles north of Nazareth in Galilee. Jonah was a prophet of God from Galilee, sent by God to the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam II, which dates the events then of Jonah's life to around the middle of the 700s B.C., more than 700 years before the birth of Jesus, another prophet of God from Galilee. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Get up, Jonah, and go to Nineveh, one of the chief cities of the great Assyrian Empire, located about 600 miles northeast of Galilee, 600 miles, about a month's journey. Again, today the ruins of Nineveh lie in the outskirts of Mosul, Iraq. We're given no details here about the particular evil for which the Ninevites are being judged, but what matters is that the Lord's patience with Nineveh has all but run out. And so we see the first point of this book. All people in all nations are accountable to the God of Israel. No matter where a person is born, no matter what their ethnicity or culture or religious heritage, no matter what they have been taught from their infancy, no matter how much or how little of God's revelation they are exposed to, all people in all places at all times are accountable to the God of Israel. For he alone is the creator of heaven and earth. As we read through the numerous warnings and condemnations of the nations of the world, recorded in the other minor and major prophets, their evil is not some failure to implement the detailed stipulations of God's covenant with Israel, requiring the people of Israel to, to live in a particular place and to adhere to certain dietary restrictions and to perform certain rituals and to observe certain holy days. No, that's not what the nations are being held accountable for. No, they are being condemned for two things, idolatry and injustice. Idolatry having failed to seek and worship their creator and instead to have fashioned gods of their own imaginations, gods that they believe they can manipulate into granting them the desires of their hearts, all the while refusing to bend the knee to the one true God whose existence cannot be denied. For, quote, he has, what, we, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Romans 1, 19-21 They should have known better. We should have known better. All people have failed to love God with all their heart, and thus are guilty of 
idolatry. The nations are condemned for idolatry, but also for injustice, for having failed to seek the well-being of others, for having failed to love their neighbor as themselves, oppressing the weak and the poor, seeking one's own well-being without regard for the well-being of others. All people have failed to love their neighbors as themselves, and thus are guilty of injustice, idolatry and injustice, lack of love and humility toward God, and lack of love and humility toward others. This is the just condemnation of Nineveh, of Israel, and of us. But if the first point of the book is that all people and all nations are answerable to the God of Israel and are justly condemned, the second point is that mercy is available for all who repent. That's the point of sending a prophet to pronounce judgment upon Nineveh. It's an act of profound mercy. When God sends a prophet to pronounce judgment upon a people, it's understood to be an offer of mercy if they will repent of their evil, self-serving ways. Hear how God explains it in Jeremiah 18. He says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, that is, if it repents, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. If they repent, I will relent. Now, to be clear, God is under no obligation to extend this offer of mercy to anyone. The Ninevites deserve swift judgment. They do not deserve mercy. That's what makes it merciful. And yet, God shows them mercy. He shows them mercy by sending them a prophet that they might repent and be spared of the judgment they deserve. Okay, so that's the first couple of verses. How do the people of Nineveh respond to this call? Surely we read about it in the next few verses, right? Well, there's a problem in verse 3. But Jonah rose and flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord commanded his servant to arise and go, but he instead rose and fled. Rather than obeying the command and heading northeast, Jonah rose and fled to the southwest, to the port at Joppa on the Mediterranean Sea, to sail as far as possible, as fast as possible, away from his God. What is he thinking, we ask? Surely he has sung the song of David from Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you are there. There is no escaping the presence of the Lord. What is Jonah thinking? But you see, sin is never rational. Disobedience never makes sense. That's what makes it foolish. Okay, but what is Jonah wanting? Why won't he go and proclaim the word that the Lord has given him to proclaim? Notice that no explanation is given. We'll find out more in a little bit in a later chapter, but we need not skip ahead too quickly. The narrator intends to leave Jonah's motivation unstated 
so that we as readers don't miss the point. It doesn't matter why Jonah has disobeyed. God has spoken, and disobedience will only bring harm, never happiness. Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. One moment the ship was setting sail from the shore, all was well. In an instant, the ship is nearly torn apart in a nightmarish storm. The sailors begin to fight for their lives, doing whatever they can to lighten their load, while crying out to their gods, gods of their own imaginations, gods that cannot hear, gods that cannot save them. What a desperate and pitiable situation, if only a servant of the one true God were there to bear witness about him to bear witness about his holiness and his power, his justice and authority, to bear witness about his mercy toward all who will call upon his name to be saved. If only such a man were on that sinking ship. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Sinners aboard a sinking ship facing certain death, without hope, unless a servant of God teaches them to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. I'm not talking about the circumstances in which Jonah found himself. I'm talking about the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Our next-door neighbors, our co-workers, our unbelieving friends and family members, they too are aboard a sinking ship. They too are facing certain death, eternal separation away from the presence of the Lord. And they too are without hope unless a servant of God teaches them to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Have you proclaimed the word that the Lord has given you to proclaim? Have you called them to repent and to receive the good news of God's mercy towards sinners? Or have you lain down and fallen fast asleep? Death to their cries for help. So the captain came and said to Jonah, What do you mean, you sleeper? That is, how are you sleeping? What are you doing? How are you so unconcerned with your own fate? How are you so unconcerned with the fate of those around you? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. But Jonah does not arise. He does not call out to God. He does not bear witness to God before these desperate men. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Surprise, surprise. The winds obey the command of God. The waves command the obey, obey the command of God. Even the dice obey the command of God. All of creation obeys the command of God, except for sinners like Jonah and like us. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, Jonah, and where do you come from? What is your country And of what people are you? 
The lot has fallen on you, Jonah. Surely you possess the knowledge that we need to be saved. What is your business here? What God have you angered? Verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Yahweh is the personal covenant name of God revealed to his chosen people. And Jonah here bears witness that Yahweh is not merely the God of the land of Israel or merely the God of the people of Israel, but he is creator of heaven and earth and is thus the God over all. But notice what Jonah claims about himself. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. Do you now? Because I don't think that you do, Jonah, and neither do these unbelievers observing your life. After all, what does the fear of the Lord look like in a person's life? Is there any fear of the Lord in responding to his command to go to the northeast by instead fleeing to the southwest? Or in refusing to arise and call out to him for mercy when facing the due penalty for your sins? Is there any fear of the Lord in that? Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. What must we do to be saved, Jonah? Ah, see, now that sounds like someone who genuinely fears the Lord. That sounds like someone who genuinely fears death as they ought. Verse 12, Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah now bears witness, not just to God's power and authority, but to his holiness and justice. For Jonah accurately bears witness that disobedience to this God deserves death. But Jonah's witness is woefully incomplete and inadequate. Yes, Jonah deserves death, but isn't mercy available if he will simply call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? If he will simply turn this ship around and head for Nineveh instead of Tarshish? Why does Jonah have no fear of death? and of the final judgment that awaits him there. Does he presume upon God's mercy for the coming judgment simply because of the community into which he was born? Or simply because he self-identifies as a Hebrew, one of God's people? Or simply because he claims to fear the Lord? What about you? Do you presume upon God's mercy for you in the coming judgment? simply because of the family into which you were born, or simply because you self-identify as a Christian, or simply because you claim with your mouth to follow Jesus. God's mercy is for those who genuinely repent and cast themselves fully upon the mercy of God offered in Christ. Getting back to Jonah, perhaps it's not presumption on his part. Perhaps... It's such a hardness of heart 
that he doesn't want to be saved, that he really does desire to be completely separated from the presence of the Lord in death forever. But nothing could be more foolish. Both the Apostle Peter and Jude describe eternal death as the gloom of utter darkness. It's an indescribable horror that is to be feared, not to be desired and sought after, Jonah. But the more we persist in fleeing from God, the more that we heap one foolish decision upon another, God says that our foolish hearts are darkened, Romans 1.21, and given over to a love for the darkness rather than the light, John 3.19. Having been commanded to, by God to arise, Jonah chose to descend down to Joppa, verse 3, down into the ship, down into the inner part of the ship, verse 5, to lay down fast asleep. And now he has chosen to descend even further down into the depths of the sea, to rock bottom, into the utter darkness of death. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They're trying to spare Jonah's life. They're showing him a compassion that he has not shown them. But they could not get back to dry land. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, the, the sailors called out to the Lord, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. These pagans do what the prophet of God refused to do. They called upon the name of Yahweh, genuinely seeking his will, genuinely seeking to please him, genuinely fearing him. And with the sea having grown more and more tempestuous, they rightly conclude that God has spoken. Jonah is guilty, and the penalty is death. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The storm has calmed, but the men are no less fearful than they were before. Why not? Clearly, God was angry at Jonah, not them, right? God's wrath has been satisfied, so why fear now? Because now they know for certain, without any shadow of doubt, that this God really does have power over the untamable seas. Now they know for certain, without any shadow of doubt, that the penalty for disobeying him is death. A moment earlier, the storm of God's wrath was bearing down upon them. Their ship was breaking apart. They were facing certain death. And now, all is calm. Their lives have been spared. And thus, in beholding God's terrifying power and authority and holiness and justice, in beholding his amazing mercy toward them, for they too deserve death for their sins, they know that, they are moved then to worship him, this God of mercy. They offer a sacrifice, spilling the blood of an animal, acknowledging the death that they deserve. They make vows, surely resolving to seek and to serve this God who has shown them mercy. Now, as we come to a close of the sermon, you might be thinking, Pastor, 
There's one more verse in chapter one. Aren't you going to read that? No. Before we move to what comes next, we must spend time with these transformed sailors and allow their testimony to speak to us. They are the ones that we are to emulate, not Jonah. I wonder if the fearful response of these sailors to the calming of a storm reminds you of anything. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples are in a boat. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke, awoke him and, and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. There was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? These sailors see the storm calmed with a word by Jesus. And a great fear of him arose within them, for they see that he is sovereign over creation. He is God the Son in human flesh. And the day was coming for these sailors when they would discover something even more amazing about Jesus. While Jonah, the disobedient prophet from Galilee, had to be cast into the sea to calm the life-threatening storm facing those sailors, Jesus, the perfectly obedient prophet from Galilee, had come into the world to cast himself into the sea of death to calm the life-threatening storm of God's wrath that we deserve for our sins. See the glory of the calmed storm. Fear Jesus. Not with the kind of fear that would cause you to flee from his presence, but with a kind of awe and fear that causes you to flee to his presence. Flee from your sin. Flee from the wrath to come. Find refuge for your soul in Jesus. Arise, call out to your God, and he will deliver you. He will deliver you from the just death that you deserve for your foolish ways. But more than that, and beyond that, he will deliver you from your foolish heart, giving you a heart of wisdom, granting you the ability to see him so clearly that you are then compelled to begin making choices in keeping with what your knowledge of him is. Knowing him in such a way that instead of wanting to be away from him, you now desire to be with him in his glorious presence forever, which is the promise that he gives to all who call upon him to be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken through your prophets. We thank you that you have brought this message of mercy to our ears. By the Holy Spirit, let that message penetrate our hearts that we may arise and call out to you, that we may vow to obey your command to arise and go, go and make disciples of all nations. Bless the preaching of your word. In and for the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.